Welcome to today's edition of Invest Africa Insights, the leading business intelligence service brought to you by Invest Africa. And good day, everybody, wherever you are listening to this webinar entitled Sustaining and Promoting UK Africa Trade in a Post COVID 19 World. Uh, thank you for the t taking the time to join, and particular thanks to the distinguished panelists who uh, have agreed to participate in today's. Uh, webinar, all of whom have a huge and detailed expertise and knowledge in promoting uh, UK Africa trade and investment. Uh, I'm going to ask each of the panelists just to briefly introduce themselves uh, and also to let you know the organisation that they come from, and then we'll get into the detail of the webinar. Uh, Matt, would you like to go first? Thanks, Mark. Hi, everybody. I'm Matt Lilly. I'm the CEO of Prudential Africa. Prudential's a UK-based life insurance company, and we're in about uh, we've got about a million customers in eight countries across Africa. Emma. Um, so I'm Emma Wade-Smith. I'm the UK Trade Commissioner for Africa. And in this role, it's my job to help increase the value and the volume of trade and investment between Africa in, and the UK. Um, and I do that through teams located in 23 African countries, which together represent 88% of Africa's GDP. Thanks. Thank you. Everton. Good morning, Mike, uh, Mark, rather, and everybody else. Um, it's a pleasure to be invited onto this uh, webinar today. So my name is Ibukun Adibayo. I'm a director of the London Stock Exchange Group, uh, responsible for Africa and emerging market strategy. Uh, we have a, a very interesting time that we're facing at the moment in relation to, uh, to, to the continent of Africa. The LSE has a very, very large contingent of African companies listed on our markets, just over 120 companies uh, representing a market capitalization of about um, 220 billion US dollars, which is uh, essentially the second largest collection of uh, African companies um, in public markets. So very delighted to be here and uh, happy to share some views with fellow panelists. Thank you. Uh, Mark, good morning and good morning, everyone. Thank you for having us. Um, my name is Timbi Termias. I am the head of Africa at CDC Group. CDC is, um, which requires explaining at this point in time um, in the world's uh, crisis with COVID, but CDC Group is the UK's development finance institution. We are the world's oldest impact investor. We've been investing for 70 years. Um, and we provide patient, flexible capital to the private sector in Africa and South Asia. Uh, we're currently invested in about 800 or so companies throughout Africa, and uh, we believe we've created over half a million jobs on the continent. Uh, we focus on infrastructure, financial institutions, manufacturing, food and agriculture, and construction, uh, but our mandate is primarily focused on um, strengthening the private sector and helping growth happen in the private sector in Africa. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I'm going to ask all of the panelists just to give a high-level um, summary from their perspective to start with about the impact that they've seen that COVID-19 has had on UK-Africa trade and investment in the last 10, 12 weeks or so. Do we go in the same order? Matt, do you want to kick off from your perspective, please? Yeah, sure. Thank you, Mark. Um, you know, we were coming into this situation um, off the back of a really strong year 
Uh, last year, we had very high growth across all of our businesses. The demand for our products and services was high uh, across all of the markets that we're in. And we had a very, very strong first quarter as well. Um, and so our business had momentum, had uh, energy uh, amongst our people, a, a sense of uh, purpose uh, and, and a real, real um, winning way about it. And then um, the lockdowns, which happened at different times and to different extents across the business, affected uh, the way that we were able to do business, can't meet customers face to face and explain and talk them through the complicated financial decisions that the long-term savings or a protection product enables. And, and that did have an impact. But, you know, our business, uh, our people care passionately about the products and the benefits of our products for our customers and, 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 and took upon themselves a real sense of purpose to reconfigure our business to be able to do it uh, in a way that, that still um, was possible and that still mattered to customers. Uh, with the restrictions in place. And so, uh, you know, it has had an impact uh, in the short term, but but not massive. And actually that impact as the lockdowns uh, removed is, is is starting to fade. And and, and so now what we're seeing in, in terms of our business is, is a change in demand. So probably the balance between buying short-term protection products versus long-term saving has shifted a bit. Uh, you know, for obvious reasons, uh, but but customers still need and value our products, and uh, and and our business is still, you know, employing uh, tens of thousands of people, uh, serving million customers, uh, paying our suppliers, you know, keeping keeping going, and with with the same sense of purpose. In terms of long term investment, uh, we don't see um, the long term need for our products. Uh, to have impacted at all. In fact, if anything, it's increased because, you know, in the short term, people's balance sheets have been uh, impacted and they're going to be need to be repaired. Um, there, there may uh, be a, an impact on affordability um, and, and currency that you know, uh, comes into it later. But in terms of our investment, uh, our enthusiasm uh, for growing our business and the pace at which we're trying to grow them, that it, it doesn't change that at all. And, uh, you know, we're still... Um, Planning ahead with uh, our, our plans to build a bigger business. Thank you. Always good to hear positive, uh, positive things. Emma, you will obviously have a very broad and deep uh, understanding of the changes that have happened in the last two and a half months or so. It would be, I think, very helpful just to understand for everybody to understand a little bit about the impact on from a government perspective, but also what you're seeing from the private sector, potential investment and trade as well. Yeah, great. Thank you. Um, I mean, a bit like Matt, we were, sort of, you know, January, February, we were uh, sort of super excited on and had a huge amount of momentum on the back of the UK Africa Investment Summit, um, which had gone exceptionally well. And, you know, we were uh, sort of hell bent on, on sort of building on that success. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think the immediate response was slightly um, stopped us. Uh, in our tracks for that, um, as we diverted our attention to uh, to really providing that immediate uh, interface with business. Um, so, you know, what the Department for International Trade uh, does as its sort of you know, core reason for being is is around understanding what is happening uh, in markets, understanding the impact on business, and so uh, it's a really strong message. 
um, for all of my teams across the 23 countries where we are in Africa uh, to engage with UK companies uh, in markets to understand the, that immediate sort of response um, and impact, both in terms of how how have companies sort of shifted or transitioned um, or adapted uh, their products and services um, to respond to COVID-19 in the immediate period. Um, what impact is it having in terms of you know, uh, jobs and uh, investments and so on? Um, and I think the the really good. The positive story on that is you know, a consistent message from across the UK investment community um, about sort of maintaining that investment um, and not, not sort of um, being driven out of markets, if you like. Um, and uh, I'm really understanding sort of what the, the sort of the additional challenges were uh, around COVID-19 in terms of supply chains, uh, free trade uh, and kind of keeping keeping trade moving. So you know, particularly, I think, in the in the light of, sort of um, commercial flights stopping almost entirely um, across Africa. You know, what does that mean, particularly for sort of um, uh, food and, and agriculture? Um, and we've seen sort of a big impact in Kenya, for example, Ghana, Egypt, where we've got UK companies uh, supplying fruits, vegetables, flowers, you know, fresh produce um, into the UK market and elsewhere. Um, and really working directly with companies and with governments to try to unlock uh, those additional barriers that COVID-19 has, has created. Um, and also looking, frankly, at, uh, at local production capability to see where we can um, provide the UK market with essential PPE. And we've done that from Egypt, for example, uh, which has supplied uh, a fair number of um, gowns for the NHS. Um, so, you know, that's that's a big focus. And then, of course, um, signposting companies to the raft of support that the UK government has uh, generated, um, all of which is available on gov.uk um, uh, to enable and support you know, businesses to, um, to sort of maintain, uh, maintain their operations. Um, and to do that as well, we created a, sort of a, a coordination unit so that we can not only tell the individual stories at a market level, but also really collate that and understand sort of more generically the impact on sort of sectors, logistics, etc. Um, to be able to feed that in, so that our ministers and um, your colleagues back in in London have that picture of the impact of COVID nineteen on business. Thank you, Emma. Ibukun, can I ask you to just uh, articulate the changes that you've seen in the last uh, several weeks and also how you can distinguish between the impact of COVID-19 and the other currency fluctuations, the huge market turmoil we've seen as well, both in London and around the world? Sure, Mark. And I, I think just really echoing both Matt and Emma in terms of the almost the ease of, of how financial markets were working to the lead up of, uh, of, of the announcement of the pandemic. It was dreadfully unfortunate. Um, we'd seen African governments coming to the UK markets to raise capital, which were part of general economic transformation plans. Ghana had raised $3 billion. Angola had raised another uh, $3 billion as part of these plans. And overnight, unfortunately, what we saw was, despite deep efforts over many years to build a, a really resilient yield curve. We saw the yields literally double overnight. And essentially behind that comes the, 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 
the abject fear of, of investors and, and the flight for safety. And I think that's what we've been battling with as, as an organization, as the UK government and, as, uh, and as, as the UK regulators as well. And I think there are a lot of things that can be done in relation to that. But I think essentially um, giving governments back the tools to be able to um, continue with their, with their economic growth plans is, is something that's essential to do. The, everyone knows the, 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 the shocks that Africa is, is facing. And I think, um, you know, yes, there is a healthcare crisis, a potential social care crisis. But as you mentioned, Mark, big currency shocks, inflation rate shocks, the commodity cycle issues, all of these mean that as a constant, there needs to be built in more dependencies and more resiliences which we are working with local governments, regional governments, also with the UK government in terms of how we identify and rectify some of these issues. But I think moving forward, what we'll see is that and there's been little glimmers of hope. The markets have recognised that um, all of these effects are potentially ephemeral. Um, with Africa and its true core root of um, economic opportunity, mixed with that demographic opportunity, that there are and will be um, a deep opportunity for investors to come back into the market with, with, with a little more, uh, with a little more um, uh, um, um, safety based on some of these um, initiatives that we, we want to put in place. And maybe one example of that is increasing the amount of um, guarantees that are available um, to these governments and to, uh, to, to companies as well. Been working with a number of different groups to see how we can do that. Um, looking at providing a little more flexibility for companies in the way that they report, timings of releasing of financial statements and financial information is something that we feel at this stage is, is really important to provide a platform for companies and governments to be able to um, resume the course of, course of business as, as it was um, before the start of March. Thank you. Uh, and Bite, can I turn to you next and ask you just to give us an assessment of the impact on businesses across Africa that you've seen, both in terms of those that CDC are invested in through your PE arm, but also the broader picture that you and your colleagues are seeing? Thank you, Mark. Um, if I start with the, with the first question, which is the impact, I think um, no doubt that there's there's been direct and indirect impacts to a set of businesses across the continent over the last two to three months and i think an anticipation of continued impact for a while i think um the impact has ranged from extreme in the case of retail and, and hospitality in some of these sectors where we've heard reports of 75 80 percent decline in their businesses to, to um relatively mild where banks and, and other um, service providing institutions have reported back uh, 30, 35% decline in their business. Um, but overall, I think uh, UNECA did, did a survey and, and a few others have also done surveys where you see about a 50% uh, decline in the demand or, or the business uh, levels that, that businesses are seeing. But I think that doesn't tell the full story because there is a real differentiation. And we see this in some of our direct investments. We see it also in um, kind of in the early signs of some of our indirect investments on our PER. And I'd say that there's emerging almost three clusters of, of sectors or businesses. You know, one is a set that are pretty critically impacted um, and these won't be a surprise. 
transport sector, hospitality, uh, retail, um, commercial real estate. These are ones that I think that are needing to think really hard about fundamentally what do they need to do going forward. I think a second cluster is emerging around where there's uh, differential disruption almost. If you think about hospitals, and we've seen this in our portfolio, for example, where um, elective surgeries and other things that people do are being postponed. So those parts of those businesses are suffering, whereas obviously you know, anything that's related to COVID and treatment um, and, and also to, to uh, diagnostics is, is thriving or doing well. But, but others as well, you know, we've seen in some of, um, some of our investee companies that are vertically integrated and that are you know, agro-processing or food-related that are doing quite well and are protected simply because they have their entire value chains you know, in-house and the demand for their products are there. So you have this mix in, the, in this group of business. And the last one I'd say is the ones that are emerging as being even more important than ever um, or whose importance is becoming you know, increasingly um, obvious. And these are the ones that are the telecoms companies, you know, anyone that's providing connectivity, obviously enabling the kinds of things like what we're doing now, but also I'd say you know, agriculture, things that are external and that, that really are linked to the basic needs are, are um, showing resilience. So I think you see a broad range of things that are happening and it depends on, on the industry. Um, I think for us, um, you know, as CDC and as uh, the UK's development finance institution, we've been on the continent for 70 years. We will be here. And a big part of our role is actually to be present at times like this to, to enable the, the kind of the, the stabilization of businesses. So perhaps we'll speak about it a little bit more, but we have a very specific approach to the way that we're doing this. But broadly, I'd say that the industry is uh, rather a business on the continent is being impacted. Um, in a broad range of ways. Maybe one last point I would make is, I think all of us are aware, but food security is a big looming worry um, for various reasons uh, related to obviously wages that are disappearing with people losing jobs, um, distribution issues around logistics, um, but also production concerns where I am in Nairobi and in East Africa in general, um, a big concern around locusts, around flooding, around droughts which is impacting the, the food security um, uh, going forward. So, you know, tentative times, I'd say, um, and, and that's how I would describe uh, the, the business and consumer uh, sentiment. Thank you. And I'm also delighted now to welcome Lulu Krugel, who's PwC's South African chief economist. Lulu, I think you're on the line. Could, could you just sort of outline from your perspective the impact on African businesses from... I know you're based in South Africa, but I'm sure you have a broader view from across sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and um, also, if you want to say a little bit about uh, your role as well, briefly at the beginning, if you didn't get a chance earlier. So, Lulu, over to you. Thank you, Mark. Um, yes, I'm the PwC uh, Chief Economist for Southern Africa and a partner in PwC's uh, strategy business. Um, Absolutely concur with a lot of what has already been said. We've we're seeing more resilience in certain parts um, of the economy and also in certain countries. It really depends on the levels of diversification in economies. So the more diversified economies seem to be doing better. Uh, but then we also have the double whammy, I suppose, of uh, falling commodity prices that is impacting a lot of countries uh, across the continent. So. Um, I would say that, unfortunately, a lot of um, the challenges that we had pre-COVID 
um, that we needed to address is only being uh, brought forward by COVID-19. And it's just um, really uh, brought the message home that it's necessary for Africa to diversify uh, what we're looking at uh, in terms of um, our economies and be less uh, dependent on certain resources in certain areas. Um, to build supply chains and, and trade amongst ourselves and, and across different um, countries on the continent uh, much stronger. And, and also to, to look at um, the future resilience of our economies in terms of, of debt and um, you know, overall government debt that's been growing and the government deficit and how we're going to address that. And also how we're going to link, link into a more diversified economy. Uh, I'm sorry, not diversified, digitized economy with dig digitalization just picking up speed. So what does that mean for our businesses? And um, how are we going to approach our manufacturing capabilities from there? But I also do think it creates opportunities for the continent. Um, it can really move us forward. It can force us. Uh, to address those things, um, you know, much quicker than we than we were planning to in the past, and also uh, with the diversification of supply chains and more and more companies saying, you know, we want to look at other opportunities um, and and diversify where we get our products from, um, that could also create opportunities uh, on the continent. So a bit of a mixed bag, um, and it's really are we going to turn some of these challenges into opportunities? Lulu, thank you. There's so much we could talk about, but I'm going to now, try, if I may, just drill down into each of your areas of expertise a little bit more. Uh, Emma, could I, I go in a different order. Emma, could I start with you? Could you just say a little bit more about the support that DIT is providing now to British companies who either want to continue to trade and invest in Africa or would like to start doing so now? And I'm sure there are different support mechanisms for individual specific sectors as well. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, so, uh, you know, I think what we've what we've seen over um, over the last couple of years is we've created this regional approach um, uh, to the world um, is is an ever sort of sharper focus on how do we actually sort of support companies. So. Um, you know, as I say, through through the country teams that we've got, um, you know, we're we're talking to companies and understanding um, what those impacts are, and indeed, uh, as Luli said, you know, what are the opportunities, um, and making sure that we're uh, we're sort of listening intently to to where markets are going, how sectors are evolving, uh, and how company sentiment is shifting. Um, so, firstly, just to say, you know, just to reinforce that message, signposting UK companies to UK government support programs on Dovgot. <laughs> Sorry, gov.uk, um, uh, and and it's you know it's all available there, um, and I won't sort of um, uh, sort of waste people's time sort of trying to go through all of that now. Um, but then really taking very specific actions to see where we can unlock restrictions and where we can address sort of new barriers that are hurting companies. Um, and I think you know if we take sort of Kenya as a as a as an example, just one example of that. Um, you know, we I think we all know of um, uh, is the, the big focus um, for the UK in terms of uh, exports from Kenya of fresh cut flowers, um, uh, vegetables, uh, etc., fruits and so on. Um, and so, you know, really working with the airlines, um, with the government, 
um, to, to see how we can um, minimise the additional costs that are being incurred by companies uh, trying to maintain supply chains. Um, so, for example, um, as commercial flights disappeared, we were seeing sort of um, uh, you know, the costs of freight doubling and sometimes quadrupling. Um, uh, and, and of course, for, for many companies, that's just not a sustainable sort of financing model. And so you know, working directly with the airline uh, industry, with, uh, with governments to figure out actually how can we start to help move this stuff forward at a, at a rate that is um, acceptable and, and profitable and, and, and sustainable. Um, uh, and to, to sort of you know, look at other ways that you can minimise costs, defer costs and so on to keep companies alive, uh, to maintain employment and so on. Um, it's really tough, of course. Um, and um, uh, but, but, you know, we're doing as we learn about um, new issues that are coming through, we're working directly with companies to address those. Um, and, and where we don't have yet a UK government support programme that is, that it sort of works for a given UK exporter or investor, um, given their circumstances. You know, we've been working directly with the Treasury and with Bayes um, to try to figure out, actually, is there a new solution that we need to bring on tap? Um, so, so very active um, and, and both sort of uh, general, if you like, um, but also quite specific uh, where we need to. Emma, thank you very much. Ibukun, can I come to you next? Because I, I think it'd be helpful for you to unpack a little bit more about what you're doing, you and your colleagues are doing, to support and stop capital flight from African markets, and also trying to ensure that uh, African securities maintain as much value as they possibly can. I know you have very serious links with uh, many African markets. Well, I think that would be helpful for people to understand as well. Yeah, sure, Mark. And, and I think it's a really important point. And um, yeah, just yeah, maybe in this summary, I'll, I'll refer both to the equity market and the debt market. And yeah, assuming that we all continue to believe that successful, deep um, equity markets are you know, the most positive way to democratise wealth across um, countries and support economic growth and social change and development. Then I think it's still a really worthwhile thing that we're doing, which is continuing our partnerships with our main um, uh, exchange friends across the continent. So LSE has been working extensively with the Nigerian Stock Exchange, with Ghana, with Kenya, with Morocco, with Egypt and South Africa, notwithstanding the others as well. But just really to ensure that we are aligned in terms of what we can do to keep cross-border flows coming in. It's really important that we create a, a, a market ecosystem whereby it's easier for capital to flow between markets in, in the UK and markets in Africa. And on that, under that auspice, we're supporting a, a, a linkage program which is being um, put together by the African Development Bank and the Association for African Securities Exchanges. Um, this is to ensure that inter-Africa securities flow across those key markets and LSE is, um, is ready and standing to make a, uh, um, a valuable contribution there. Um, in terms of further equity related opportunities, LSE launched a, a index which covers the equity securities I mentioned at the beginning, some 120 equity securities that are listed in London and these are across 
a diverse number of sectors. So obviously natural resources, but areas such as financial services, um, transportation, and other key areas where we're now providing an opportunity for investors, global investors, to track those stocks individually. Until today, what you had to do was to buy each one of those individual stocks in order to uh, get access to them. Today, you can buy them as a basket, and there's a value uh, to investors in being able to do that and also to be able to um, you know, create further um, democratization of, of those capital flows. So I think those are, are, are two very, very important points on the equity side. On the debt side, um, we have been working quite extensively again with the African Development Bank. Um, we're very pleased to, uh, to, to announce that we hosted the first social bond that was launched by the African Development Bank uh, on the 3rd of April. Uh, $3 billion were raised. It was just over $4.1 billion worth of orders to um, finance projects um, across Africa that were seeking to alleviate the economic and social um, problems related to COVID-19. So these, um, these securities listed on a, a market called the Sustainable Bond Market in London, which actually gives access to investors who are predominantly have mandates that are focused on social responsibility and social investing. So this is a hugely um, transformative first step by the African Development Bank, which we expect others to follow as well as we move forward. So I think um, we're, we're, we're focused on doing that. And um, you know, if I may, just for, for, for LSE's purposes, mention that we've also removed all of the fees in relation to listing on that market for a period of time, really again to support the efforts of many in terms of ensuring that capital um, remains sticky um, for, for Africa. So those are just some of the initial headlines, um, uh, Mark, but there's a lot more that we can do and will continue to do. Thank you very much. Uh, Matt, can I come to you? Can I ask you to say a little bit about what your teams are finding on the ground and also whether the COVID-19 situation has had a, what sort of impact it's had on your business. Have there been an, an uptick in the number of claims, whether it be business interruption or people claiming on life insurance policies and, and how you see all that is going to develop through if this continues for any period of time? Sure, sure. Uh, you know, um, our business has continued. Um, it's been very resilient in terms of its operations and its ability to keep serving customers uh, and to be accessible to customers uh, through whatever means customers want to engage with us. And, uh, you know, people talk about digitization and say, you know, it's, it's very important, but it's also important to recognize that if customers want to engage in an analog way, that you need to be able uh, to do that with them. Uh, in, in terms of claims, um, we, we haven't seen a massive uptick in claims, uh, and you know, frankly, we don't expect to. Um, you know, uh, as you've seen from the uh, the World Health Organization statistics, Africa has about one percent of the world's recorded cases and deaths of uh, from COVID nineteen. But you know, the World Bank's estimates are that 50% of the people around the world who will be pushed into poverty by the pandemic will, will be African. And, and that's, you know, that, that reflects the fact that the vast majority of the people in the world who are close to poverty are African as well. But, but it, you know, the economic impact is um, likely to be severer than the, the, the health impact. And, and so from that point of view, we're not expecting um, 
you know, a big impact uh, from a claims point of view, but we're proud to be paying claims. Uh, and as an industry, this is the time that we prove to customers why we exist and, uh, and, and show that, you know, when, when they need us the most, uh, we are there and we're settling claims extra quickly at the moment. Uh, but, but, you know, when we look beyond the short term and the, the claims or, or not, uh, you know, what we're, what, what we're going to see is that, um, you know, even uh, historically, even relative to GDP per capita uh, in similar nations, most African countries have quite low savings rates. Uh, and so people have, on average, lower uh, balance sheets uh, relative to their income, have uh, less of a safety net. Some of that's going to be drawn down, whether to, to cover the economic impact on themselves or or friends or family members. And there is a real need uh, over time to start uh, saving more and, uh, and, and preparing a, a bigger uh, buildup of individual balance sheets, whether it's for retirement or for children's education or for uh, for resilient resilience funds, but, uh, but but financial resilience starts with savings, and uh, and it, it's really important that uh, you know that we're there to, to drive that uh, as part of the economic recovery. It's also the other side of that is as much as individuals need to save, governments need to invest, and it's far better for governments as as we can all see if the money they're investing. Uh, is owed to people in their own currency and uh, borrowed from their own citizens. And so uh, our ability to mobilize domestic savings and channel it into long-term government investments is, is a really important part of the long-term, not just economic recovery, because getting back to where we were isn't good enough. It's the economic development uh, that, that is important. Matt, thank you. Now, I think you and your other colleagues in the insurance sector have a potentially transformational role to play, as happened in many parts of Asia, as you'll be aware. Tim Beattie, can I come to you next? I'm getting now questions coming in from those who are listening. Uh, I've got one for, for you, Tim Beattie, which I'm just going to read out. Um, we know CDC is primarily an equity investor across Anglophone Africa and South Asia. Uh, the listener would like to know if CDC has instituted specific programs, either provision, e.g. the provision of guarantees to SMEs, to help business in its focus markets to weather this COVID storm. Could I also, while I give you the floor, Tembite, just ask you to say a little bit more about what you think the medium to long-term impact will be of private equity investing of this COVID-19 uh, challenge? Sure, thank you, Mark. And thanks for the, the question as well. Um, I think maybe just to frame it to say that, you know, CDC, um, we, we, we are committed to, to be in Africa and we have a commitment to invest $3 billion until 2021. And this was a commitment that was, that was made uh, back in 2018 and, and so working through 2021. And we intend to uh, honor that commitment. So while others are pulling back from Africa, we are absolutely not doing so. Um, our objective is to continue to invest and to continue to be here. Um, the way that we are thinking about the, you know, our response to to the COVID uh, crisis is is threefold. One is about um, how do we help minimize the impact on businesses and particularly our own investments. Um, and I'll talk about that. The second one is how do we assist companies in the response effort, and and that that ranges from healthcare to other basic needs as well. And then the third one is how do we gear up to support the recovery effort because. You know, we will come out of this at some point, and and the agenda, I think, also as Matt was talking about, you know, is 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 a long-term agenda that we have. So, in each of these three areas, and, and we've called them preserve, strengthen, and rebuild. 
um, as CDC. So for us, Preserve is, is really looking at our portfolio. As I mentioned before, we're invested in over 800 businesses. Many of these are through our uh, private equity partners, the fund managers. But you know, making sure that the businesses we're invested in have what they need in terms of capital, in terms of know-how and technical assistance to weather the storm and to make sure that um, the, the uh, impact that we had, uh, our objective was to have impact through these investments and that that impact is, is that we safeguard that impact by ensuring their sustainability. So there we've provided financial liquidity. We continue to provide that for businesses um, and provide technical assistance on a bespoke basis on health and safety, job protection, cash flow management, those kinds of things. So that's our preserve. Um, the second push is what we call strengthen. And this is, as I mentioned, um, how you know, trying to assist companies in the in the response effort. And here there are two elements to it. And I think the, the question that came in aligns with this. What we know is that during times like this, liquidity dries up. And businesses, particularly SMEs, struggle because they can't meet, the, meet their uh, working capital commitments, uh, their supply chain financing and trade finance, LCs, everything else becomes a lot more difficult. So here we've put a big push uh, in providing systemic liquidity through our banking partners. So what we have is we have, we have relationships with uh, a number of uh, banks throughout the continent who then have on lending ability to, uh, to banks, which, which then further lend on to SMEs. And they're directed, uh, you know, multiple hundreds of millions of dollars into the into the system through that systemic liquidity. It's very important because, as I mentioned, SMEs in particular, but also other vulnerable businesses struggle at times like this because they can't access capital. So that's, if you will, our biggest push into the market and our support. And, and it's a proven way of actually uh, helping sustain through times like this. The second push under the strengthen is, is what we call um, um, healthcare and, and basic needs. And there it's identifying specific companies that are focused on um, either ramping up production or putting in place the capacity, uh, new capacity that is around PPE or around um, ultimately, hopefully, vaccines and other things, but healthcare-related interventions that are specific to the COVID uh, response. And here, we're typically focusing on the businesses that we know or have some affiliation to because as you can imagine, doing due diligence is very difficult during this time and, and we need speed to be able to do it. But we are deploying capital that way um, into, into these responses and looking at a number of um, technical assistance support as well to, to enable this. And the last piece is what we call rebuild. And this is the longer term outlook. And so for us, you know, we can't stop, right? You know, you know, whatever we don't do right now is going to hit us as a pipeline that does not materialize um, over the coming six to 12 months. So our focus is very much on pushing um, and thinking through some of the things I mentioned earlier. You know, what do businesses need to do differently going forward? How can we help them set themselves up from a financing and from a, a support perspective to, to um, capitalize on the opportunity that Africa is still going to be a big market, a big opportunity. And there's many, there are many businesses that can capitalize uh, on that. And on this also, we very much recognize, I mean, I think both Matt and Ibukun touched on this, you know, the governments are going to be stretched coming out of this. They are taking on large amounts of debt and uh, they were already stretched. So there's a clear recognition that the private sector is going to need to play a role and that we as DFIs are going to need to play a role to, to help. So we're, we're thinking quite deeply about that. So that's what I would say is, is the way that we maybe a short word on um, your question of what is the future of, of private equity? That would take us 18 hours to talk about, of course. But um, I think one of the things that is that was already obvious, actually, um, 
is that the the asset class in Africa is is um, is 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 starting to be challenged. The the returns in the asset class are are not easy. Exits are difficult. Um, the number of investment opportunities that meet the criteria are not always uh, growing. And I think that um, you know this is only going to accelerate some of those concerns. So for fund managers and the ones that we work with, but also others, you know, there's a big um, question to ask, which is how does you know how does the decline in performance, what will its impact be going forward? And how will um, capital that has run away um, over the last you know, two months, but really over the last uh, couple of years, how do we convince it to come back? Um, and you know, I think that there's a big set of questions we're going to need to ask about. Is there a consolidation agenda that needs to happen within the private equity space, which is a, an open question. Um, given the challenges of exits, are the, is the targeting of sectors, you know, the right one, and our ticket size is the right ones. These are the fundamental questions which I think all of us in the private equity uh, ecosystem in Africa will be talking about over the coming months. Um, but I think that it's it's an opportunity to think about what is the, um, you know, what is what is the role of all the players. And there are mitigants. I think that, you know, the slowdowns in other markets will mean that capital will look for places to go. Um, I think that DFIs like us, but also newer DFIs and others, are looking at equity a lot more today than they were before. Um, I think DFIs in general, their role is growing in the world and their expectations of their home governments is growing. So there are pockets of capital and I think there is hope, absolutely. But I think there will be um, somewhat of a fundamental rethink that will get um, catalyzed through what's happening uh, these days in the private equity markets. And maybe last point on that, I think the governments themselves um, you know, many have state-owned enterprises and other businesses that uh, previously they hadn't thought about how to involve the private sector. And I think it's going to be inevitable that now, given the constraints that they will face and given the development uh, speed bumps we're hitting, that some of those, and those can provide opportunities for private equity to play roles in some critical sector of the company. Thank you. Emma, do you want to come in quickly? Yeah, thanks, Mark. Um, just to pick up that last um, sort of last comment from Tembite and do a quick plug for something that the UK government um, has created. Um, so at the UK Africa Investment Summit, one of the initiatives was that we created an online deal room platform um, hosted for us by a company called Asoco Insight. Um, and through that, what uh, so Asoco Insight undertake the due diligence to curate and filter um, investment opportunities in Africa, uh, post them on this online deal room. So potential investors, hopefully UK investors, but um, but doesn't have to be, um, uh, can can then kind of get matched up to investment opportunities. So. Uh, you know, inspired perhaps um, even before COVID-19 um, forced us all into a virtual world, um, but a real way that we can fast track some of those investments um, and, and make those connections in a world where we can't, where it's harder to do that due diligence, as Tembite said. Thanks. Thanks. Thank you. Emma. Lulu, can I come to you? Can I ask, you mentioned in your previous remarks the very good point about accelerating digitalization that will be an inevitable consequence of this. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about that and whether you and your colleagues are seeing evidence for that, both in South Africa and broader. And can I also ask you to respond to a question that's just come in, which is how can we best ensure that the African economic recovery is both green and resilient, especially in countries which are dependent on commodity exports? Um, Mark, maybe I'm going to start with a question and, and respond to that first. 
Um, yeah. It's actually quite a concern at the moment um, that there's a risk of the conversion to a green economy slowing down as a result of the fact of the economic pressures that would be there. You know, that there might be... Um, there might be pressure on governments to say, well, uh, you know, we just don't, don't have the bandwidth at the moment. Um, luckily, from what we're seeing in the conversations that we're having across the continent, um, there's a realization that that would completely be the wrong thing to do. And in fact, that, um, you know, if we don't do it now, uh, we're going to fall, fall behind even further uh, in terms of converting the way that our economies are structured. And we are going to be even more vulnerable. Uh, Matt earlier mentioned uh, the impact of poverty on sub-Saharan Africa and that most of the people that will fall into poverty as a result of COVID-19 will be from from uh, sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, there was also a discussion um, around food insecurity and the challenges that that creates. So um, I think there's an impetus absolutely from, from government side and from the private sector to, be, to, to realize that from uh, a food, food security perspective, uh, the impact of climate change on the continent and also um, in terms of, of looking at the at the sustainable rebuilding of our economies, that we can't do a halfway job now and then try and redo it later. We need to do it now. So the opportunity and the challenge is now. It's not going to be easy necessarily. And the, over the short term, the easier way out would just to say let's continue with the way that we've been doing things. But luckily, um, it seems that most governments realize that, and definitely in, in a South African context, um, it's one of the conversations that, that we are having is to how do we rebuild our very coal and fossil fuel intensive economy in a way that is that is more sustainable. Uh, to speak to digitization, um, we've definitely seen um, last week I was in a conversation with a manufacturing um, body that uh, actually serves or, or exists ac across the continent. Um, and on that call in particular were a, a whole range of players that provide um, digital and technology services to the manufacturing industry. Um, you know, having a discussion around how do they actually um, benefit from COVID-19. And in fact, what we are seeing is that companies are saying, um, you know, moving to digitization faster and digitizing our workforce and trans transitioning the, the workforce is actually something that can benefit us at the moment. It can help us to um, operate our businesses safer. It can reduce the risks associated with COVID-19. Um, so it's a way in which we can we can actually do two things in one go. Things we should have done in any event and also get our businesses safer from a COVID-19 perspective. Um, in South Africa, and I also know in a couple of other Southern African companies, there's been a lot of work done between governments and the private sector to say these are the ways in which we can ready our businesses and open up our economies again post COVID-19. And a lot of that includes uh, digital solutions. And yeah, it's actually um, the perfect environment to, to start doing that and to transform the workforce and tr transform the manufacturing space, etc. It is unfortunately, I suppose, going to create some challenges in terms of retraining people where we potentially um, might need to use their skills elsewhere, etc. But that's a very core part of, of what most companies that we're finding um, that's approaching this are actually doing to say that how do we reskill people to make sure that there's not um, additional job loss as a result of that. 
the, the questions are flooding in, which is great because uh, it, it means that obviously what, what you're all saying as panelists is stimulating a huge amount of thought and questioning. But this is this is a, a, an excellent question, which is pertinent to all of our panelists. What role does the UK see itself playing in a post-COVID, post-Brexit Africa, where the continent's economies are moving towards the implementation of the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement or Free Trade Area? And what impact will that have? Emma, I see you nodding. Do you want to kick off? Yeah, would love to. Thank you. I was hoping I'd be able to get a chance to answer that one. Um, uh, so, look, I think from a UK government perspective, um, you, the the commitments that the Prime Minister made at the Africa Investment Summit still stand absolutely and drive our work. And that is around wanting the UK to be Africa's business partner of choice uh, on trade, on investment and on that long term partnership piece. Um, as part of that, and in the Brexit context, um, you know, we've been working really hard over the last three plus years um, to make sure that we can transition the existing trading arrangements that govern uh, the way that, um, that, that Africa's countries um, uh, trade uh, with the UK. So we've done a number of things on that. We've got now um, a UK's uh, generalised scheme of preferences, which will uh, replicate what we have currently at the EU level. Um, as the implementation period comes to an end. We've just recently announced the UK's global trade, uh, sorry, global tariff, um, which will uh, reduce some tariffs uh, and simplify the tariff scheme um, so that um, uh, those that don't uh, benefit from the generalised scheme of preferences or indeed an independent um, free trade agreements um, will be able to understand kind of what those tariff, um, what the tariff regime will be. Um, and we do think that that is, as I say, simpler uh, and, and lower uh, in, in a number of different um, uh, product lines uh, than the existing um, uh, EU uh, global tariff that we are currently part of. Um, and then we've been transitioning uh, existing free trade agreements, economic partnership agreements in sub-Saharan Africa, association agreements across North Africa um, to provide that continuity of um, of trading arrangements. And, and our aspiration is to you know, keep that conversation going and make those um, trading arrangements even more um, constructive for free trade uh, and, and enabling Africa's uh, economies to diversify uh, and mature. Um, the, the free uh, continental free trade area, I think, is is uh, is brilliant. And if anything, COVID-19 has reinforced the importance of it, um, of being able to uh, more fluid, more fluidly um, uh, at uh, a lower cost to move products and services across international borders. Um, so, you know, fully supportive of that. And the UK government's been providing technical assistance and other support to the African Union and individual countries as part of that. Um, so, you know, for me, I think, um, you know, so many of our companies already recognise the opportunities in Africa. Uh, we've heard today that despite um, you know, the, the, the sort of challenges of COVID-19, we'll still see African opportunities flooding through. Um, and uh, so I think that UK Africa trade and investment is, is going to go from strength to strength. Thank you, Emma. Tembite, what's coming quickly? Yeah, sure. Um, I just make the point that from the private sector perspective, large businesses are very important. And uh, Africa has too few large businesses. And one of the reasons that we see that drives that is because the markets are fragmented. And, and inevitably, the AFCFTA will start to create markets that are larger. 
selfishly for us as investors into businesses, it gives them a bigger market to sell into and to do so. But I think from a development impact perspective, you know, it creates larger number of jobs, big businesses do. Um, it's a more efficient way of deploying capital and reaching scale. Um, and importantly, uh, large businesses pay taxes. And I think this is a really important uh, part of what Africa's growth is going to need to depend on. Thank you. Matt, do you want to come in? Thanks, Mark. I like to echo everything that Emma and, and Tambite said, uh, in particular about uh, you know the, the the role that large businesses play in in creating jobs, large numbers of jobs, which create large numbers of consumers, but also large numbers of taxpayers, uh, and it's that virtuous circle that you know really needs to be triggered. Uh, and it's also people with formal jobs. You talk about resilience. Uh, having somebody who pays your salary, whether or not the company had a customer this week, that's economic resilience. Uh, having to go out every day and, uh, and, and and hustle for the money that you're going to use to buy food today, that's not economic resilience. And so large companies and big investors uh, who are there for the long term and, and who treat everybody with respect, uh, you know, play a, are going to need to play a huge role in, in economic development. And British companies can uh, be a huge part of that if 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 they're committed and if they uh, uh, you know uh, uh, work hard at the opportunity, realizing it's a very competitive landscape out there. Thank you. I'm going to try and squeeze one more question in. I'm going to come to Ibukun and Lulu uh, for this one first. Uh, given the challenge ahead to what was already a considerable financing gap, how will the UK work with local DFIs as a way of empowering? Mark, we've lost you. We've lost you, Mark. Uh, we have. Let me see if I can. Mark, can you hear us? See whether. But we can see the the question from Sanjeev. Um, uh, around how will the UK work with local DFIs as a way of empowering them to do more in Africa um, and on an accelerated basis, which their local presence can do better? Perfect. I don't know whether um, uh, it's Alex here. I don't know whether, uh, Lulu, you want to uh, kick off with that just while Mark um, uh, re-established connection. Yeah, I think um, if there's one thing that, that is absolutely clear from... Uh, from everything that is happening around COVID and also some of the trends around, I want to almost say the fracturing of the global economy uh, before, you know, even that started before COVID-19 is that um, Africa should, uh, you know, rethink, I'm, I'm not saying we should move away from traditional alliances, et cetera, but we should rethink think how we access um, development finance and where it comes from and build uh, in my opinion, multiple relationships. There are certain areas where we've become very dependent on specific types of finance, specific uh, you know places of finance and investment, etc. Uh, and not to say that um, you know I'm particularly anti anything, uh, but I think one of the key things, and I think that's where development finance institutions, definitely from the UK, can play a, an important role, is to help to diversify that. And um, something that uh, I, I know we discussed on a previous call where Emma was also part, uh, part of is that move from aid to trade. So how do we turn, um, you know, opportunities or um, aid and uh, aid type investments into something that's more permanent in terms of um, longer term economic value and investment? And I also think, again, um, that is where 
the experience and the knowledge that could come from from the UK um, could be really valuable on the continent. Brilliant, thank you, Ibukun. I don't know whether you've got a um, uh, any additional comments to this. Yeah, just a brief view on that. And um, Sanjeev, it's a great question. And, and um, one of the things that we're realizing as we go along is some of the initiatives that have already been put in place now really have a purpose. So one particular initiative in the UK run by the City of London um, and chaired by Mark Florman is, is a group called the Sustainable Development Finance Initiative, which is really the UK's attempt to ensure that it becomes a relevant financing arm for development finance across the continent. And the work there that's been going on over the last sort of year or so really plays into um, helping local DFIs and other types of institutions that will help in terms of um, that financing gap. And, and in Africa, as we know, that financing gap is a, at a very different level um, to other more developed economies. So, you know, where do you find that missing missing middle, as we call it, which is that investment somewhere between you know, 20,000 pounds up to a few million dollars? And some of those initiatives within that group um, uh, will help to, to, to impact that as we go along. <laughs> okay, well, I think we're, we're uh, we, we've. Uh, I need to contact my local member of parliament to get the broadband uh, Wi-Fi better here in Lincolnshire. <laughs> I um, I want to draw the uh, webinar to a conclusion. We've run out of time. Uh, thank you all for joining. I hope you found it stimulating, rewarding, worthwhile, enjoyable. But also, particularly, thank you to all my panelists who've been excellent in their detailed, comprehensive knowledge. And I hope you'll all appreciate that there's a real appetite, desire, enthusiasm, hunger to make sure that the UK-Africa trade and investment relationship not just continues, but continues to grow and thrive both through COVID-19 and beyond. Uh, so thank you all very much indeed. And if you're not a member of Invest Africa, please become a member. Thank you and goodbye.